For an off-the-cuff look at the world of motorsport, GrandPrixNet.com, your F1 News Network, brings you the F1 Fanatic Podcast. It's time to hit the track for the first ever episode of the F1 Fanatic Podcast. Thank you for downloading our show and be sure to share it with your friends. We're available on Spotify and right throughout the Anchor Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Lyons, writer at GrandPrixNet.com, and this is the place to tune in for all things F1 and some other things that might tickle our fancy as Australian motorsport fans. Joining me today on this hot lap around the world of F1 news with GPN is a contributor and a guy who would love to see our home state of South Australia host a race on its streets again, I'm sure as much as I do, Lachlan Winnell. Lockie, welcome aboard to GPN. Brandon, great to be joining you today and yes, we can only dream, can't we? That's right, yes. Yeah, it was uh, all so close that we might uh, see another race, but unfortunately those hopes were dashed. But uh, yes, we can only dream, my friend. So uh, yeah, mate, um, let's let's get into the, into this, uh, uh, this being our first ever episode here on GPN. And look, mate, there's no team orders here, so we can, uh, we can jump in on just about anything, mate. But uh, look, uh, you know, let's just um, look, have a look at uh, some of the, uh, the big news around Formula One. And uh, obviously we have to start on a uh, bit of a sad note this week with the passing of Sir Frank Williams uh, just over the weekend there, mate. Uh, end of an era and uh, probably a character we uh, just completely unique to Formula One, isn't he? Yeah, it certainly is. And I guess uh, Sir Frank... Time I sort of started getting into Formula One, you know, in the early to mid nineties, Williams was certainly at their peak, and and Frank certainly was, you know, front centre of the operation together with Patrick Head, not far in the background, but yeah, man, that was instrumental in so much in in Formula One, and obviously dates back before our time following the sport, and quite a few Australian links through the journey, Mark Webber in the more recent times, but uh, going back to Alan Jones, nineteen eighty. Uh, yeah, certainly a man that left his mark on the sport and I guess, Brendan, not to um, play down the uh, uh, car accident that uh, he had in the in the 80s. Certainly remarkable that uh, what he was able to achieve after that is uh, yeah, nothing short of outstanding, really. That's right, and he just took it all in, uh, all in his own, uh, having that uh, tragic accident, but... Uh Still uh, kept his uh, determination uh, right, right there, and uh, was able to, um, you know, uh, yeah, still uh, produce championships, still get on with everything, um, Formula One, and in his life. So quite remarkable there, and uh, you hit the nail on the head there about that very uh, antipodean uh, connection between Williams and his Australian drivers, mate. Do you, do you think there was something in there with that? Uh, I guess that Aussie grit spirit that might have uh, might have uh, you know tugged at uh, Sir Frank's heartstrings there in his appointment of our drivers. It could have been my first memories of Alan Jones were him racing touring cars in the mid nineties, and um, by that stage, Brendan, he was I'm not going to say past it, but you know he'd been around, uh, he'd done a few laps by then, and uh, Alan was uh, you know let's just be pretty brutal at times, really, and. And Mark Scaife is probably someone that can back me up on that. But maybe Frank Williams saw that and liked it. And I think he did because, more important, Alan was a, a bit of a warrior behind the wheel and uh, didn't mind getting up under the wheel. And let's not forget, too, Williams was probably the first team in a lot of ways that had a lot of success not being a factory outfit, if that makes sense. We had Ferrari and 
lot of other teams that had quite a bit of success along the way. But Williams were a, a team that, as you said, didn't mind that Aussie spirit. You know, maybe Alan wasn't getting paid as much as some of the other drivers, but and you know, I think everything worked in their favour with uh, what the package they had. Indeed, and a lot of that attributed uh, to Sir Franks. Uh, you know, it, he was a type of guy that inspired the right people to get behind him, like you mentioned, one in uh, Patrick Head there and, and a raft of world championship drivers that he made. Um, essentially not uh, having much to do with the, the actual production of the car apart from maybe some, uh, some you know, some more... Uh, you know, design brief type of stuff, what he wanted, but other people do the legwork for him. And he was just all about, you know, getting the best deal for his team. And that was his contribution and setting up some of those remarkable relationships, you know, namely one Renault in those uh, all-conquering days of the FW14B. Uh, yeah, it just uh, speaks a lot to, to that kind of can-do attitude that uh, maybe, uh, yeah, he saw in our Aussie drivers as well, like Jonesy. Yeah, and you think about the other drivers along the way. I mean, Juan Pablo Montour was one of my favourites, and he was another one that, you know, didn't find a good hustle. Uh, uh, Nigel Mansell, another one that was, you know, just a, a, a machine, you know. Probably not the, you know, if you think of a picture of a race car driver, Nigel Mansell probably isn't someone that springs to mind, but he made the moustache work, and, uh, yeah, there was a long line there of... Uh, yeah, drivers with that fighting spirit, one would say, and I know Mark Webber sort of showing Williams at a time when things were on the downward spiral a little bit, but maybe he saw a bit in Mark as well. Indeed, and uh, Mark certainly brought that uh, into his uh, Red Bull days there, mate. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier there just about uh, Jonesy and that crossover between F1 and his touring car there. I think that's something we might touch on uh, because uh, not only have we got the uh, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, the inaugural one this weekend, it's uh, it's a feast of motorsport for for everyone uh, of, of us fanatics and tragics, as we've got Bathurst as well this weekend. So there's definitely a, a crossover topic there we might jump onto a little bit later, mate. But uh, let's just have a look at uh, how things are shaping up. They'll be uh, taking to FP1 uh, roughly about 12am our time. It's uh, that uh, Saudi Arabian time zone for us people down here in Australia. Uh, yeah, it really tests the uh, the character of uh, how committed we are to stay up at these hours to watch uh, what Formula One, isn't it, mate? It is. A lot of people think I like European tracks for the scenery and the, uh, you know, the romance, the renaissance, such a circuits, but it's really just the time zone that I like the most, really. And Suzuka. I'm all for Suzuka. Oh, we love that. Only if they race at normal daytime, though. That's right. Yeah, you know, that whole uh, motorsport on the Sunday afternoon, putting up the feet. Oh, it's a, it's a rare treat that we get down here in Australia. But uh, looking over to, to Jeddah, a brand new street circuit um, touted as the fastest street circuit in history. Look, uh, almost by design, uh, a lot of these uh, races that are, um, you know, uh, we've, we've got uh, three races now in the desert. Uh, look, the F1's move into this area, mate, with a lot of these, uh, yeah, uh, made-to-order circuits. Uh, do, do you think that might be why it's so popular that we're seeing more races uh, in in the Middle East? Yeah, I mean, I think there's another, you know, big reason why there's lots of races in the Middle East. But, um, I mean, it's got nothing to do with money, Brendan. I don't know anyone that would ever throw that idea out there at all. But uh, Who would it? Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm all for Formula One going to new places, and I think it's exciting. But uh, yeah, look, I'm still I'm still skeptic on the on this this upcoming Grand Prix for a couple of reasons. But the track itself, yeah, interesting. Street circuits, we know there's only ever been one good one, and that's in Adelaide. Every other one since has been, you know, a bit hit and miss. In saying that, there are a few that have shown some elements of good racing. This one, more of a, a racetrack that is a road somewhat. It, it, you'd say it's probably a little bit more Albert Park-esque in its ideas, Brendan. I think so, yeah. We're, we're kind of placing a per, essentially a purpose-built circuit into a city landscape. That's that's what it sings to me. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, we dare not bandy around that uh, that topic of money, but, you know, the, when you throw a lot of that stuff at things like these projects, you can just about make anything happen, can't you? And that's kind of what we've got. You can, and I... I don't really like tracks that are too wide, too big, and everyone thinks, oh, long, straight, big corners, it's all good, the cars are going fast, but most exciting races, and we see this year in, year out, are on the older, more, what would you call, classic circuits that aren't the best for the modern F1 car, but that's what makes the racing so much better, is because the cars don't suit their track, and this track probably suits the cars, probably one of the best circuits in the calendar, but will that make great racing? Uh, not sure. Yeah, that's right. You know, the three DRS zones, uh, basically uh, we're talking about a lap that's seventy uh, percent at full throttle. So uh, there's you know plenty of speed and uh, risk and reward element, but not seeing a lot of like there's probably one heavy braking zone where we might see uh, a bit of a uh, send it moment um in in uh, using uh, Daniel Ricardo's uh, vernacular there um but you know when we're talking like you said you know more traditional circuits with uh you know more uh, you know putting the, the cars a bit more outside of their comfort zone that's probably where you see a bit more exciting racing than trying to manufacture the racing you might say yeah, 90 degree corners always are a fan favourite of mine on racetracks. We don't see enough of them. And this one does not have anything close to that. No, no. So, a lot of open angles, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the most we see now uh, is Azerbaijan in terms of street circuit with uh, some dedicated 90 degree uh, sections. Even, uh, you know, the closest I'm ever going to get to a Formula One car and driving one is probably on a race sim and uh, jumping on the uh, the Azerbaijan circuit. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that 90 degree section does have that kind of, say, like an Adelaide feel to it. And there's uh, a lot more that can, uh, you know, adds to the racing uh, with those types of uh, sections, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one of those things I've watched, I mean, I'm not all, not all the European circuits are good, we know that. But I, another one that I like that's very underrated is probably Canada. Just a classic good track. In, you know, it's got some 90 degree turns, got some, it's got a good mix of everything. Whereas, and probably not the widest circuit, because let's not forget the cars are a lot bigger than they were. So, yeah, I think Formula uh, no tracks, I know some of these designers get a lot of money to design these things, but, uh, and they look spectacular, don't get me wrong, like, those Middle East tracks all look very spectacular, but, as we've seen, some, or often not, they don't always give us the best race. 
That's right, yeah. That looked great on the broadcast. And what what I'm uh, really want to see from this uh, race is uh, some crowds there. Now that things are opening up and we kind of can do that, uh, it's one thing we don't really get to see a lot and in these desert races. So with uh, Jeddah, uh, take they have this um, local catch cry of Jeddah's different. So in terms of their, uh, it must be a tourism brand or something, but you just hope that, uh, that they're going to bring something this weekend that we probably don't see a lot in these desert races, and that is namely some crowd and crowd involvement uh, there. You know, up against the barriers would be great to see. That's what we're accustomed to seeing on these street circuits. So... Uh, we hope to see see a fair bit of that, mate. And uh, I guess um, you know who who do we think uh, this circuit might suit in in the context of the uh, of the championship? Yeah, just before we get to that quickly, it is interesting to do one parallel back to Williams' uh, first Formula One race in Saudi Arabia. But let's not forget Williams was sponsored by Saudi Air for a few years early on there as well. So no strangers to Formula One. We must put that in there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, new tracks are always interesting with teams. It's hard, no data. I mean, they would have run simulations three million times, but until they get on the track for the first time, won't be known. You'd have to, whenever there's a new track or a track that they haven't been to for a while, seems to be a Mercedes are always on the money. And I mean, I know they've probably got the best car all around, so it probably makes a bit of sense, but... Saying that, we could see some curveballs thrown up. Uh, the fast corners might suit the Mercs, which, you know, would, would suggest that. But in saying that, uh, the, the Max Verstappen factor with his very unique car setup and the design philosophy of Red Bull, that might be one to watch. I want to know, though, Alpine, a little bit of form in recent weeks with a brand new track. Is this maybe one that they might be able to jag? I don't know if their power units quite got the amount of the others, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I guess, uh, yeah, They like you said, they have shown a bit of the form there, but, uh, you know, maybe not with the power, but Fernando Alonso in that seat, you know, wily old cat, he might be able to drag something out of that that machinery to uh, really upset the apple cart there at the uh, at the front of the grid, uh, perhaps. And uh, he very much did that in Qatar, didn't he? He did. And, I mean, not drawing any parallels, but Valencia was another street circuit that famously is now abandoned. He would have raced at that. I don't know if there's any similarities between them, but eh, he did all right there. That's right. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's an all-purpose driver, uh, Fernando, indeed. And uh, look, uh, you you kind of uh, mentioned that uh, Mercedes might be uh, suited to this track, and uh, Toto Wolff has come out quite uh, quite strongly in saying that their uh, machinery is in uh, the best uh, it's been all season. So some posturing there, perhaps. But uh, look, that some they've shown some real performance in. Uh, in recent weeks, uh, taking this championship battle to the uh, to the final round, but uh, look, uh, how how do you think uh, they they're going to be able to stop Max Verstappen? Yeah, look, it's going to be they're going to have to be good on strategy, and the other one is obviously the Bottas and Perez situation. What happens with those two there? To be honest with you, how they perform and how they qualify obviously is going to play a pretty big role in strategy. Um, and yeah, I mean, if, if Vettel can qualify on pole and get out in front and control the race, yeah, it probably doesn't really matter after that. 
but it, it's when you get uh, Hamilton on pole and then Bottas second and then can control a bit of a rear gunner type thing, then Red Bull, Red Bull strategy in recent times has probably been a little bit, I wouldn't say roll the dice, but maybe a, a more of a, a slight element of rolling the dice compared to Mercedes. So maybe the Red Bull strategy might outfox Mercedes if that were to happen. But And the other unknown is, as we said, Alpines and McLarens, where they fall into the mix, you know, they don't have a championship to win or lose. So, you know, they're going to be going all right. Uh, the Mercedes engine in the McLaren, not sure if that might bring in any non-subtle affiliate orders. I don't think they would, but hey, it might be one to keep an eye on. Yeah, in. Indeed, they, uh, I haven't really seen any evidence of that happening yet, but with a title on the line, things can change pretty quickly. And I guess the other factor to chuck in there and uh, something we covered in uh, one of our uh, uh, feature articles in the build-up uh, to the Saudi Grand Prix this weekend is uh, Pierre Gasly, who has, uh, well, he, he's pretty much uh, completed his turnaround uh, from uh, being rejected from Red Bull and now uh, single-handedly uh, placing... Alpha Tauri into their best position ever as a constructor. Um, they could potentially uh, finish fifth uh, this year, uh, all things going well. And look, you know, he's put himself into some very, very good positions where he's been able to benefit from the f- a lot of the fallout from the battle of the uh, of the higher order. And look, you know, he's got no tail gunner, like you mentioned, like uh, a Bottas or Perez behind him. So he's just going to be all guns blazing, I think. he's He's got a lot to gain out of uh, taking every risk and every chance. And he, he, he might, who knows, again, uh, my answer to Red Bull perhaps, uh, but I highly doubt that. Yeah, I know at the start of this year, maybe it was last year, I can't remember, there was a, a, a bit of mentioning that, Alpha Tauri. Actually, it would have, was when was when Alpha Tauri wasn't Toro Rosso. There was a bit of a mention that the team was going to run almost as a, a sister operation and not a junior team anymore. And at the time, I think a lot of people were a bit sceptical, myself included, going, yeah, right. But it seems to be half true. It seems to be that that team is, as you said, you know, as you said, operating as a, a sister operation and and not so much a junior team anymore, which yeah, I like. And, you know, it's a bit of Minardi heritage there, so yeah, something for uh, the Minardi fans of Australia, which there's a lot still. There certainly is with that in, uh, ingrained uh, with the uh, 2005 performance of uh, Mark Webber at the uh, – at the Australian Grand Prix there, snagging that fifth from absolutely nowhere. Um, and it was actually owned by uh, Australian... Um, you might have to remind... remind Paul Stoddard. Paul Stoddard, yeah. that's right. The uh, aircraft entrepreneur who uh, took on Minardi and it was looking like an all-Aussie operation there uh, for a while, which was great to see. But uh, something we haven't seen since is the likes of Sayer Mark Webber rocking up at Bathurst yet. Uh, you know, mate, it's on this weekend and it's uh, it would be great to see uh, another F1 driver perhaps take on the mountain, wouldn't it? Yeah, we've heard the, the Dan Ricciardo, Lando Norris thing run up a few times and I know there is a bit of a connection with Zach Brown, McLaren and his uh, affiliation with United Autosports and the 
Walkinshaw and Andretti United operation. That's so, right. Yeah, yep. It's a, bit, it's a long string, a but of, it could happen, hey. <laughs> yeah, but he's got a couple of supercars in his collection. So there is, you know, an element of a connection there. But as I said, yeah, actual Formula One drivers coming out to race has been been quite some time. I mean, it was a common thing, but it had happened a bit in the past. Um, and even when we look at, mention Alan Jones at the start of the show, I mean, he had a, a fairly decent touring car career after the, the Formula One thing stopped. Yeah, he certainly did. And he was probably the, the well, the last... Fo- uh driver that had a fully-fledged Formula One career. Well, you don't get more fully-fledged than a world champion. But um, having having a career and then jumping into a touring car, I did have a look back through uh, some other cameo appearances and uh, there was a uh, an ill-fated uh, attempt by uh, Sir Jack Brabham and Sir Sterling Moss in 1976 in a uh, Tirana, which uh, <laughs> which retired after lap thirty seven. I mean, geez, that 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 would have been a uh, a success story in the making. That one there um, would have been exciting to watch. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we'd like to see uh, a bit of a you know yeah someone like a Mark Webber that's that's won races, has been right in the title fight. But you know, like our, one of our, our so one one of our favourite uh, made a few appearances there in uh, Tarquini in the. The super touring era. He did. That's right. Oh, Gabrielle Tarquini of um, now. I've, I've got to test my memory banks here as to who he raced oh, of about of about uh, twenty five minnow teams. That's that, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> twenty four of them failed to qualify, and uh, yeah, no. He, I mean, talk about it. I mean, we could do a show just on him. I mean, it, that is the definition of a warrior. There. That is, mate. Yeah, he he. Uh, it certainly embodies that fighting spirit, uh, no matter what, uh, to get the performances out of any piece of machinery. And, uh, you know, mate, um, we have seen over the years, like some other um, Aussies uh, really have a tilt at trying to get an F1 seat. And uh, look, mate, um, there's a couple of stories getting out there about some of their trials and tribulations. And uh, perhaps uh, there's one that you'd like to share with us that's caught your fancy. Yeah, there's a few that, Pop to mind. I mean, there's a lot of drivers that obviously have that. I mean, it, the, the the drivers that say they always wanted to race supercars and they'd never thought about Formula One. I I probably accept that from a few, but I think most of them probably early on in their karting career have had Formula One ambitions. But I know a few maybe realised quicker than others that maybe touring cars was where they would. Fall, fall on their feet. Um, the one that I probably resonate with the most, and I mean, I've been a big fan for a while, is probably James Courtney. Now, he was a guy that left Australia very young, won a couple of world karting titles, uh, one of which against Fernando Alonso. Then British Formula 3 was leading the championship whilst doing that was a test driver for Jaguar in their F1 days in the early 2000s and had an almighty crash at Monza one day testing and after that the the open wheel and the F1 dream was over and James is very lucky to, to get out of that and be able to have a, a race car career after that but yeah I guess you sort of wonder what might have happened there he certainly had the talent and was leading British Formula 3 which at the time it's a bit hard with feeder categories in F1 
uh, to sort of track where drivers go and what they might be doing. There's a lot of different series, but back in those days, it really was British F3, then maybe European F3, and then uh, Formula 3000. That was basically it. So if you were in one of those three categories, you were on the radar. That's right. Yeah, you had uh, one yeah one foot in the cockpit. And uh, I do remember that uh, James Courtney story and uh, kind of him looking back on those days. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a rear wing failure um, that happened on his Jaguar. And uh, basically, uh, from uh, paraphrasing his recollection, he was basically sent out on the track um, at, the, at the wishes of the engineers who wanted to try some... Uh, some setups and all that, so he was kind of uh, yeah put to task uh, at testing uh, this Jag at <laughs> at Monza. You know that's uh, the, the Temple of Speed. There, it's uh, coming a cropper. There might be enough to uh, maybe uh, have you think twice about what uh, you know. I guess in what context you get into a car. And he seems like the type of guy. You know, he was quite happy to spend some time away from supercars, come back on his terms, uh, as we've seen with the the Boost Mobile operation and all that stuff. And um, he's still got the form, but maybe, yeah, uh, an incident like that might make you, uh, yeah, have second thoughts, uh, perhaps. Yeah. And, I mean, I've, I've heard, as you said, bits and pieces of that story over the years as well. But, oh boy, it must have been a, a somewhat of an open test because there's also another bit of that story where I believe Michael Schumacher might have been the next car to stop after that crash and sort of uh, tell the marshals what to do and things like that and, and you know, hurriedly trying to translate some Italian to, uh, well, English to Italian with uh, what might have been going on. So, yeah, a, a frightening incident nonetheless um, in a time when F1 cars were, were pretty brutal. I'm not saying they're not brutal now, but you know, three litre V10, you know, screaming. Um, and, yeah, James was a, you know, a contracted Jaguar driver. Now, the Jaguar thing got sold to Red Bull, I think, a year after that anyway, or maybe even at that year. So who knows Who knows what might have happened. But, yeah, it looks like James was certainly on the path to F1. Yeah, that's right. And uh, also we, we hear a similar thing with Craig Lowndes. Uh, he went to Europe and, uh, yeah, uh, the, yeah, um, but... He had his success over there, but, you know, chose to come back here in the end. And, uh, you know, it's something that we hope uh, someone in the near future can make that uh, that story arc of going to Formula yeah, 1. Funny story with Craig Lowndes, though, driving for Helmut Marco's Formula 3000 team. And his, his teammate was Juan Pablo Montoya. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the thing uh, who... The people that he's rubbed shoulders with just in that experience, yeah. it's uh, it's amazing to think how close uh, he might have been to, to snagging a seat. Or and, and another frightening thing as well, look, I checked up today, that year, 97, when he was racing in, in Formula 3000, Christian Horner was also racing, still racing then as well, you know, the boss now of Red Bull. So, yeah, as you said, frightening to think the people that uh, he bumped into in that year. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, look, we've seen uh, some other uh, Formula One drivers come and uh, have a crack at Bathurst. Uh, some internationals uh, back uh, when uh, the Gold Coast race was a, uh, a co-driver uh, invite race there for the internationals. And uh, 
We've seen uh, Jacques Villeneuve, uh, World 97 World Championship, uh, play a deputy role at Kelly Racing. And uh, one that snuck up on me that was almost forgotten about was Mika Salo. Uh, yes. Yes, who actually won a race with Will Davidson in uh, 2012 at the Gold Coast there. And, um, you know, another driver who, you know, was flipped between Minnow teams and, uh, you know, but came so close to actually winning a race with Ferrari, all bar uh, some team orders there at a, uh, a race in the, the late 90s, I believe it was. Yeah, that was when they... When Schumacher had his injury and was out for a few races, and Ferrari all but gave up on the title, and then uh, Irvine kept winning a few races, and uh, yeah, needed Mika to pull over one day to get her final win. And, yeah, frightening stuff. That uh, 1999, I believe, that might have been, or 98, gets, gets muddled up with me. Either way, uh, McLaren won that season. It wasn't, it wasn't Eddie Irvine. Um, yeah, with the other... Australian drivers that have had a crack there. There are a few. So, Will Davidson's another one that he had a test in a, Mc, a Minardi F1 car. And I think it was a bit of an Australian sort of full start art, you know, thing with Motorsport Australia and, you know, things like that. And he was also racing British Formula 3. But the one in more recent times, and he's actually, funnily enough, driving with James Courtney this weekend, is uh, Thomas Randall now. He was also racing British Formula 3 and uh, actually raced against Lando Norris. <laughs> so he's now come back to Australia and he's, he's going to be in supercars full-time next year. But, yeah, another one that you sort of think what might have been. Indeed, because I've actually seen uh, Thomas Randall race at the 2019 Superloop here in Adelaide. And, yeah, he was in the uh, the G, uh, sorry the Super 2 category back then. And, yeah, you could just tell there was something different about him, he just had a bit more outright pace, just a, a bit more style and all that in the car of someone that, uh, you know, yeah, just just looked like he, he needs to be at the pointy end. So uh, hopefully um, Bathurst this weekend, uh, he might be able to, uh, yeah, get up there with, uh, with Courtney. And they've done all right, actually. A bit of a uh, top 10 finish in uh, practice one yesterday. So, you know, maybe there might be uh, some performance there to watch, mate. But uh, yeah. Uh, what, what's your read so far on the, on the mount this weekend and how things have been unfolding? Look, I think you can't obviously discount the two Red Bull cars and the two Shell V-Power Dick Johnson racing cars. But for me, I'm, I'm going to go in a bit of a limb here. I've always been a big fan of Chas Mostert. And while Contra and Dreddy United have been getting that thing going in the last uh, you know, six, 12 months or so since Chas has come on board, New engineer, uh, Ryan's got uh, Andretti and Zach Brown on board as well. So, and I, I, I'm really, I'm really liking that team. And if you said to me, Brendan, twenty years ago, that you'd ended up, you'd end up supporting a team that once was the Holden Racing team, I'd probably laugh. But <laughs> funny how things change. Uh, yeah. So Chas Mosley holds it. That's a strong combo. The other one I like outside of the Shell and, and Red Bull cars is. Cam Waters and James Moffat. I think the Monster Energy car, that's, that's one to watch. Uh, outside of that, I don't mind the two Erebus cars. There's a bit of a roughy. Will Brown, Brody Kostecki's in the other one. Uh, got uh, Jack Perkins, Dave Russell, co-drivers there for the, uh, both those cars. Um, the other one is oh yeah, probably the, the Courtney Randall one. I 
I like that for a few sentimental reasons. I'm, I'm a big fan of Tom Randall. He's going to be full-time next year, and I've always been a big fan of uh, James Corn. He's a bit, of a bit of a warrior, so to speak. So that's that's probably my read on it. It'll just be, uh, I guess, the, the mountain throws up a lot of things. The one that I would probably keep an eye on, though, is the speed of the Red Bull cars. If they are not far apart, which they often aren't, the strategy in the double stack is going to be a big part of how they try and map out the day for the team. So that might be one that could see either of those cars come undone. Yeah, yeah, yeah perhaps. And and I think uh, Red Bull uh, are going to throw everything at this one, being Roland Dane's uh, last, uh, last Bathurst at the helm there. And uh, it's going to be... There's so much riding on it that I think they'll either absorb the pressure as they usually do, or you could have that <laughs> that uh, remember that year when uh, Wing Cup didn't quite have enough fuel to make it to the end. You know, it could go either way. That amount of pressure, you would just hope that they're not putting it on themselves. They're just going to let let the weekend unfold naturally as it would. Um, but they've got the resources there. They've got the old heads to pull this off. And, uh, you know, they could uh, potentially, you know, see a one-two. The, the, the script could flip and uh, maybe it might be Lounsey getting an eighth Bathurst. I mean, how tantalising is that? You know, that would he come back to equal uh, Brocky's record of nine? And well, I think they're talking about wildcards more often and I think it's something that Superguards are going to try and do more of is more wildcards slash cameo appearances. And I think it's all good. It's all good because... With only 24 cars on the track in a normal race, and you know, when I was when the sport was at its peak, there was 32, 34 on the track. All the teams were making money, we're told. So, you know, I, I think the wild card idea is a good one. And yeah, I wouldn't be. I I would. I'd almost say it's more than 80 percent. I think Lounsey will be on the track next year. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. Yeah. I, I think, especially with these cars now, the, the current spec car going around another season. I think all the teams have probably got enough gear easily to, and and next Bathurst next year will be playing the last three races possibly of these current spec cars. So, yeah, I would suggest they would go. You know what? We've got enough bits. Let's just put one together and go for it. That's it. they could well do, and that's probably one we should throw out to uh, to our listeners there on social media. Perhaps reach out to us at uh, Grand Prix dot net. Uh, dot com i should say on um on social media there we're on uh, facebook and maybe let us know if you think lounsey uh will go around for another bathurst uh to maybe match uh, brocky's uh record there so uh yeah mate you could be right um because there's going to be a lot changing um after next year with uh because we saw just this morning uh the gen 3 uh, announcement being made at mount panorama so uh, some shifting sands uh, that have been they've been well in the works uh, for a long time now, getting these uh, cars up and ready, and uh, very very interesting that uh, they're really trying to pin this back to the uh, the pedigree of Australian touring cars, the Ford versus the General Motors uh, company there. But do you think this is uh, really starting to uh, to change, and we're gonna? probably divert away from the uh, the traditional production car battle at Bathurst. Yeah, well, it's certainly been... I mean, the, the cars for the last... Well, the, the Gen 2 cars are a, a, a frame chassis anyway, so they've really been away from anything that resembled a, a road-going car for quite some time. So 
Yeah, it is an interesting one. Um, I like the, the GM and Ford thing. I think there's obviously a lot of relevance in that over the journey. I do, I mean, I, I do hope that more manufacturers look at getting into it, but I can't really see it happening because more manufacturers say they are keen on motorsport, but they want hybrid and that technology involved. Now, supercars doesn't have any of that at the moment. Not saying they might. They might bring in a hybrid system at some stage. And, and I think if they did that, it would only need a slight element. You would get other manufacturers engaged and keen. And saying that, I do find it interesting that a, a company like Toyota, uh, heavily involved in NASCAR, which does not have much of any hybrid angle at all. So... Obviously, they can do it if they want, um, but yeah, I don't. I can't really see any other manufacturers getting into it at the moment. I think it will be a, a GM and Ford thing for for some time, at least while the Mustang and Camaro is um, in production. Which I don't know. I don't think it's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> Just quietly. <laughs> that's right. It, it's been a uh, mainstay both brands uh, for, for so long. So that's uh, well, that would be why it's they've been chosen as the platforms uh, for the Gen Three. Uh, specification that comes into uh to play and uh yeah it's interesting uh you mentioned that the the hybrid uh whether any adoption there gets made because that's certainly the way formula one will be going uh with their uh up and well from 2026 uh this new super duper uh efficient engine that's meant to be coming in so we're we're really going to see a massive weekend and uh yeah a lot play out in both worlds of motorsport uh in formula one and supercars mate so uh, for our yeah, first... Just, uh, just quickly, Brendan, uh, we're in South Australia, of course. Uh, the piping strike plate, I've dubbed it. <laughs> Who's going to be the first South Australian over the line? You've got Scott Pye, you've got uh, Tim Slade, you've got Nick Perkat, you've got Todd Hazelwood, and if you want to go for a bit of uh, fanfare, you've got Russell Engel, who is also from South Australia. Which one of those five is going to be... A- Oh, the enforcer's a hard one to go past, but i got to say a guy who's probably in had a lot more match practice and just uh, I've met the guy and I've really, really been following his career quite closely in, in young Todd Hazelwood. He's a fantastic guy off the track and a great racer on the track. Um, he's And I just really hope he can uh, bring, it, bring something special home for his last appearance with BJR. I think that would be really, uh, uh, really special oh. and, and great to see. Lock him in for the uh, piping strike plate. That's it. I like it, mate. We you, we've heard it here first, and uh, that is uh, GPN's own piping strike plate that we'll be awarding next week on our uh, podcast for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, passes this weekend. Just uh, I guess before we wrap things up, great to see that uh, all the categories of Australian motorsport have. Put the differences of the past in the past and uh, got on the track all this weekend. So S5000, TCR, TCM, Super Utes, GC Racing, everything's been there, which has been great. Porsche as well. So it's been good to see it. And now with uh, the new ownership of Supercars, so we're going to see more of it too. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited for that. And the S5000, I really like them. Just wish there was a couple more on the track. Yes, that's right. They are quite an exciting category. Just uh, all that horsepower and big rubber. It's uh, such a good, uh, good combination uh, for racing. And even uh, uh, we were talking about F1 crossovers with Australian motorsport. Rubens Barrichello jumped into one of them uh, not so long ago, and uh, 
uh, he absolutely loved it, uh, getting back into one of those machines uh, from from his account. So, uh, yeah, uh, we, there's just going to be so much on this weekend, mate. I, I, I was worried about how we're going to spend that gap in the time zone between Bathurst finishing and... Uh, and uh, Jeddah beginning, but uh, I think there's going to be plenty on the plate this weekend for us to all tune into, isn't there? Absolutely. No uh, no shortage of motorsport this weekend. <laughs> That's right. So we've just crossed the finish line on our first episode here on the F1 Fanatic podcast brought to you by GrandPrixNet.com. Join us next week and add us to your podcast stream and we'll catch you 